Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how it is to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right. Uh, before I actually get into this, um, I announced earlier, for some of you who got here on time, uh, that uh, there's going to be an Arabic, man, I almost said aerobic this time. It's your fault. Just put this in my head. Uh, Arabic uh, service, and, and I already announced it. I won't announce it again. But as I mentioned, there are now, there it is official. We do have these that you can take with you. It's in German and in Arabic. Uh, not aerobic. Um, and you can grab one of those from Steve, who's sitting right there at the back um, in the gray sweater. And uh, so after the service, grab some of these from him. If you know anybody that is an Arabic speaker, maybe even if you know somebody who might know somebody who's an Arabic speaker. Ooh, changing the volume on my mic a little. Um, so yeah, you can grab one of those and invite somebody. Also in our announcements, I forgot that... Exactly. So, this will be our last message in First Peter for this year. And what a text to end on. Whew. I don't know if you guys were like listening or she was reading that, but that is a very potent and powerful text. It's a bold message that uh, I think, at least for me, when I was preparing this, and every time I've read this text before, it's, it stings a little bit when it comes to the application of this text. It's never too much fun to be faced, I think, with areas of our lives that maybe are not fully in line with God's will or as much as they could be or should be or as much in line with his word. Thus the stinging sensation we tend to get, I think, in texts like this. But I hope that you'll leave encouraged today as well as maybe ready to try and see how you can apply this lesson to your life, because the truth that Peter is presenting here is God's truth. It's God's truth. And when followed, will produce, I believe this specifically, will produce a, dr like a drastic transformation of what Christianity really means and how it is seen to others. This is a truth that we're, or this truth we're about to plunge into is an image of radical Christianity. Not passive, not light in the traditional sense, but 
if we truly live these things, it will look different. We will look different to the world. And what is our, the title of our series is Standing Out in a Foreign World. And I think here we're going to see a principle that when applied, truly stands out, truly looks different from how the world would react. So let's all kind of be open, I think, and receptive to maybe hear the part of this message that might apply or put some pressure on the parts of our own life that need some transformation. So I want to encourage you in that. Before I start, let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this text today, for your word today, Lord, and that we would all be receptive. We would all be open to hear what you would have to say to us. Show us the parts of our lives that do need to be worked on by your Holy Spirit, transformed by your grace. Lord, as always, let every word that I speak be your truth alone. In Jesus' name and to your glory, amen. So what we're looking at today, I always see new faces in here, people that maybe weren't here last week or the last few weeks, or maybe this is your first day in this series. And so I like to kind of just show you a little bit of where we're at. This is a letter, so it's not meant to be taken in little sections. It has a context. And so I want to kind of just touch quickly on what he's building on here. He's kind of started a new point uh, last week, and so he's kind of continuing on this. And uh, it actually began even a few weeks before that with our status, so who we are. We have to start there. We're, again, all keeping in tie with standing out in a foreign world. Let's start with our foundation. And this is kind of the foundation to what we'll be looking at today again. And this is our status. And that's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. I'll read it really quickly. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So simply put, we belong to God. He paid for us. We are his chosen people. We are a holy nation under him. This is a high status. Children of God in in a lot of other contexts that we see. We are full-fledged, card-carrying members of and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's good news. And all of this that he gets into in the practical is built on, first, your status. You belong to God. And it's a high and glorious status that we've been given. But it is not without purpose. And what does the verse say? We see our purpose in declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So we have a purpose to declare the praises of God. But how is this done? He kind of set the stage for what we're getting into today, the practical in verse 12 of chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that, so pagans, anybody outside of the Christian church, so anyone that you meet on the street, live your lives, live such good lives among them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the premise for the text today. And this is, this is where it all kind of begins. Everything we're going to be looking at is how we actually do that. The practical ways 
and uh, Peter's going through all of these different examples. So we, from our status as God's chosen people, are called to declare with our mouths. So we, we want to declare his praises. We want to worship him. We want to sing of his, of his praises, but we also want to talk about them, tell people of, of, his, of his glory. And we want to live our lives in such ways that we bring glory to God, that we would be a reflection that goes upward, that people would look at our lives, and even though they may accuse you, even though they may ridicule you, and they not, may not get it now, there might come a point, there might be a day where they are able to glorify God by looking back and seeing the example that you've set. And so we're going through all these different examples. And we want to follow ultimately in Christ's footsteps. And last week we went through a few examples of how we can live this out that we saw, I think, in a little bit indirectly in the text, but also some direct examples. And we looked at how we treat money and um, different ways that our lives need to can be lived in a way that points to God. And Peter used the example of the state or, and how we treat the law or government authorities and that we, they need to also be held in respect. Even, and this was in the midst of the reign of Nero, who was not very well liked by the Christians. And so we kind of tied that in with even our modern day presidents and leaders today, we want to even show them respect, even if we don't always agree with who they are or the decisions they make, uh, we still are called to show everybody some level of respect. And that's what we looked at last week. And now we're continuing with this same thought in our text today in verse 18 through 25. And this thought, the same thing kind of continues into chapter 3, and the next thing is going to be looking at marriage, but you'll have to wait until next year to hear about that one, thankfully for us all, because it's going to be a really fun message to preach. (laughs) So verse 18, let's read this again. Slaves, or I'm going to use servants as a lot of translations use, and I'll tell you why in a second. Servants, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. That does not sound very fun. But I want to point out why I use the word servant, because the word slave there, the Greek word, is not actually specifically the word for slave. Uh, It's a little bit more broad. It seems that he is talking about slaves. I'm not saying that he isn't, but he is using a broader term for that. And I think it could be also, uh, and most translations do actually translate it as servant, But a better way, I think, to view this would be that it's those who have a master, who have a boss, one who is under a head of a household, is kind of the Greek word, or the Greek translation, the translation of the Greek word. Man, you guys awake? All right. So it means you have someone over you. And I point this out lest we be tempted to say, I'm not a slave, so this text doesn't really apply to me directly. Uh, We all fall under the category of having somebody over us, somebody that might, that is a boss, a teacher, etc., whatever it might be. We all have somebody who's over us, but also, I want to point this out that we don't try to uh, avoid this, the application for our lives, is that the principle found here is one that must be applied to all those we interact with not only those of whom we are under authority. The principle 
in a word that I see in this text is meekness. Meekness. To live in true and complete meekness before the world, as we're called to do here, is to show it both to those who treat us well and even those who would treat us harsh or cruel. And what is the key? What does he start with? We do this in reverent fear of God. In reverent fear of God, we do these things. Ultimately, we looked at last week, there was a part of the passage was that we are free. You are free. But don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. And so we are free in this world. We're free from this world. We're freed from the shackles that this world has on, on, on us uh, in our flesh. We're free from that because we belong to the king, because of our status. But in this life, in this world, we live as slaves to God. And our submission to those over us on earth, whether it's a teacher, it's a boss, even a really bad boss, we are really in submission to the Lord. And it's unto him that we do these things. Let's read verse 19 and 20 again. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating or punishment for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, I think first, when we do wrong and we suffer for it, most of us will eventually get to that point where we kind of, you know, we hang our head. We expect to receive the punishment. We accept what we deserve. We did wrong. Maybe we argue with ourselves and fight with, was it really wrong or whatever it might be, but we come to a point usually Okay, yeah, I'd I'd messed up there. And maybe I deserve this punishment. You know, I picture the dog kind of sitting next to the torn up sofa when you get home. I don't know if you guys have dogs, but this happens always at least once when you have a dog. And you come in the door and they like immediately know they're in trouble. You know, the head goes down really low and they try to like give you the puppy dog eyes, hoping it will help. And they just kind of sit there and wait for what's coming. You know, they know the newspaper's coming or whatever it might be, whatever the punishment is. They know it's coming and what, for whatever reason, they just kind of went crazy for a minute. But is it commendable to endure a suffering or a punishment when you deserve it? Well, the text is saying, well, no. That's just justice. What is commendable before God is to endure suffering with meekness even when you're doing the right thing. If that didn't sting you, you didn't understand what I said. To endure wrongful actions against you when you did nothing to deserve it. God is saying that's commendable in my eyes. How far is this from our human nature? It's far from my human nature. 
And this isn't the full application. It's not just an undeserved punishment. Let me just key off a few of the key things that he's, I think, laying out as this true, what I'm calling true radical Christianity, tied in with this key element of meekness all throughout the text. So we are, as as radical Christians, to live truly different against what I would say is a strong part of our human nature. We are to submit to those over us with respect out of fear of the Lord. That's not always easy. That's in verse 18. We're to bear and endure in meekness when suffering unjustly, when we didn't do anything to deserve it. That's verse 19. We're to endure suffering patiently when we have only continued to do what is right. That's in verse 20. And I think here's the really hard part. We are to never return evil for evil. Never seek vengeance. In verse 23. How far is this from our human nature? How can we ever possibly hope to live this way? I mean, think of your own life. Times where you've been accused of something, of doing something wrong. And you knew you didn't do anything wrong. Whatever the situation might be, what's our first impulse? To accept it patiently, to endure it with meekness, or to demand our rights? Wait a minute. Look at what, what about what they did? You're going to tell me I did wrong? Look at them. I was in the right. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. I deserve justice. This is what we want to demand. This is our human nature. It's pretty normal to feel that. Our impulse is always going to be self-preservation. To turn the accusation onto someone else. And the, the, the problem is, or the, the press behind this is pride, which is riddled through us from the moment we're born. And meekness, meekness is the fiery sting that pride seeks to extinguish from us. We've been raised and groomed by this world to demand what is owed us. We struggle to surrender when we know we're not actually in the wrong. We struggle to surrender when we are in the wrong. So how much more when we do what's right? It is commendable to surrender our rights and to live in meekness. Now, there is a righteous, holy justice within us. And there is a place for that. We kind of talked about it last week, though, with that God brings the law, God brings the judges, the policemen, to uphold, the, the, to, to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. So there is a place for that. And there is some overlap that may, where it gets a little bit complicated. But I think... 
there's a principle here that what is our first reaction? We want to change that so we're not demanding our own rights but are meek in our responses. The end of verse 20, it says this commendable. This is commendable before God. And that word commendable is actually a word that's often translated gracious. And the root word is the same word for grace. And so I I think this is fascinating because when we talk about it being commendable, when we talk about this kind of receiving something from the Lord, it's you have this kind of sense of the reward of grace as well as an implication of or an evidence of a work of grace within you. So we, it's out of grace, it's a gift of grace and a reward of grace to endure unjust suffering. They work together. It's, again, this is from the, the work of the Holy Spirit that He began in us, that He's completing in us, that we see this kind of, it's all out of grace, but it's also something that we receive grace through. But, and when we live this, and when we really receive this grace by enduring unjust suffering, it brings a change of our heart, a radical change of our heart. And the thing I want to focus on is where is this change centered in the text? It's in the directing of our consciousness. Or practically, what does it say? That they are conscious of God in the midst of this. That's how they do it. That's how you can endure suffering with meekness. This is God-centeredness. You know, this goes back, if you've been to church your whole life, back when, we were, when you were a kid, you always heard this, you know, putting God at the center of your life, put God at the center of your life, at least I did, it's something we, we hear often. It's a, it's a very Christian-y thing to say. But do you really live a God-centered reality? Are you conscious of God in the midst of suffering, even unjustly? Because I believe when we are, it changes things. When suffering unjustly, I want justice. I want revenge. I want the last word. Do you need to have the last word in every argument? That's the opposite of meekness. (laughs) That stung me a little bit. It's the opposite of meekness. It's not a God-centered way of thinking. Do you find it difficult to live in humility when you're wronged by others? You have to get them back. You have to say the last word. You have to jab the knife back change your consciousness needing the last word is self-centeredness God-centeredness or to be conscious of God in everything we do produces a radical change in perspective and you begin to see the surpassing worth of your relationship to God your status as his a holy nation chosen 
you begin to see the temporary nature of this world. And then does it really matter in eternity that you have the final word? That you stand up and hit back? The world celebrates strength. That's where this comes from. It celebrates power and authority. But God commends meekness and humility. And in the end, we can know from the word of God that all injustice done in the history of the world, all sins that have been committed, everything falls into two categories. It is either covered by the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of one's sin, or it is repaid in full by the wrath of God and the justice of God at the final judgment. You don't have to have the last word. It doesn't mean anything. We live with a different perspective. And we not only should seek to have meekness, we're called to it. Verse 21 the first part of verse 21, to this you were called. Now called, meaning this is, a, this is an ordinance by God. This is a part of the Christian life. You're called to this. It's vocation. It's purpose. It's not just something we endure. You're called to it. Called to what? To suffer even for doing what is right. But why? And to what purpose are we called to suffer, even unjustly? Why is he telling us this? What's Peter's point? Because we were called to be Christ-like. Verse 21, the rest of it. So to this you were called. So you're called to suffer. You're called to endure hardship. You're called to endure being ridiculed, being oppressed, being beaten when you didn't do anything to deserve it because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is... This, I, I just want to take a moment because I feel like I grew up with this. Maybe you've heard this. I don't know. A lot of preachers today are trying to sell a gospel that is not found in God's word. Unless you just take out big chunks. I've heard people say, you know, if you get right with God, if you're doing, if you're doing good, if you're doing well, good things are going to come to you. Good things are going to happen for you if you just do good. If you just try really hard, God's going to just give you all kinds of good things and no suffering and everything's only happy days. It's not in the Bible. If you do what's right, if you don't sin, or at least not too much, then yeah, bad things won't happen to you. But the reality found in the Bible is that suffering is not only inevitable it's a part of the christian calling and not in the way that well life's hard sometimes or oh this is just a coincidence the reality is that sometimes and not always sometimes 
God calls us to endure a suffering for a time, for a purpose. Now, part of that purpose is the sharpening of us. We would be tempered through the fire to be made holy, to be made a pleasing uh, sacrifice, living sacrifice unto God. But I want to focus on what he's focusing on here. God himself calls us at times to endure a suffering. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And something I really, yesterday I was on a prayer walk, no, Friday, it was Friday, and I was thinking about this message, and how do you tell, how do you talk about suffering? That's not fun. And I really, I really just, I realized that as I was walking and it was like pouring down rain on me and I was like, I'm feeling like I'm enduring suffering right now. I just, I really realized that there's no suffering I can walk through or endure that Christ doesn't connect with. And so what I realized is that if you want to be near to Jesus, which most Christians would say, yeah, I want to be close to Jesus. There's nothing closer that brings us closer to him than walking in the very steps that he did in suffering. That's not fun. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only way we connect to him. I've certainly had moments of great joy where I was, or, and I've also had moments of, of just feeling such excitement and such peace in the presence of God or the presence of Christ but I've also felt his presence in the midst of suffering. And that's a closeness where you don't, there's, there's nothing to say, there's no prayer, it's just weeping before Christ and suffering and knowing that he's there weeping with you. That brings us near to Christ in a way that no other experience does, or at least in a unique way to any other experience we have with him. We'll never be perfect, of course, And our actions can never pay for our sins. So when we follow in his footsteps, it's not, this isn't very popular anymore, but in the earlier church, it was, you know, if you endured suffering, if you, you know, whipped yourself or whatever it would be that you would kind of atone for a certain amount of sin in your life, it's not what we believe. That is not the purpose of suffering. That's not what it means by following in his footsteps, but What was his example? His example is that he did nothing wrong. No foul, nothing wrong, nothing evil was in his mouth. He spoke no, nothing wrong, did no evil act, certainly not against those who were persecuting him. He was there to save them. And here's where I find it really hard to grasp is that he had the power over them. That's true meekness. You know, sometimes we might have meekness, but it's because we're fearful to say something back. And that's a different kind of thing. (laughs) Oh, you know, I would really tell my boss, but I'm going to be meek, and I don't want to lose my job. That's fear-based. Jesus could have turned them all to dust and walked down off that cross and said, I'm done with this. I don't need to endure this. I don't have to put up with this. 
He didn't have to. That one stings a little bit too. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. We want revenge when we're insulted. We want to have the last word. We want to say what we really think about somebody when they try to belittle us. We want to demand justice, that it's not fair. How dare you treat me this way? Jesus offered prayer for those who beat him and murdered him. He could have destroyed them with the snap of his fingers, but he prayed that God would forgive them. The world demands to see power, but Jesus lived in humility and meekness. This is the example he sets for us. And how could he do this in verse 23? So instead of, all, instead of uh, it retaliating, instead of destroying them, instead of you know, insulting them back, verse 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now I believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human, which means he had a human mind, which means he had thoughts that come, came into his head like we do. And I, I believe that in the, there were moments where he had a desire for justice against them. Thoughts where he realized he knew he didn't deserve it and that those beating him did deserve it. They deserved death. They deserved to go to hell. But what did he do with those thoughts? What did he do with that rage? What did he do with that revengeful spirit? On the cross, in pain, in agony, and undeserved suffering, he entrusted himself and his circumstance and his thoughts and his vengeful spirit and his desire maybe or thoughts to see them punished he surrendered it over to the Lord he did not take revenge into his own hand but fixed his eyes on God he changed his consciousness he was conscious of God in those moments and he saw the bigger picture that's the whole point, that God is big, and when we're focused on Him, it changes the way the world around us looks. So number one, we follow in His steps because He took those steps. And He calls us to follow Him. And as we follow Him in those steps, we're so close to who He is. And number two, when we follow in His example, the world will see Him in us. And that's the whole point of this whole section that Paul or Peter is trying to address. The world will see Christ in you. And those who have seen the Son have seen the Father, Jesus said. This is how God will be glorified and seen by the world through us. It's not when we live for power, for authority, for glory, for revenge, but when we live in meekness in the midst of suffering. 
God is glorified in us. And people see Christ. And that looks weird to the world. Why, why are you taking that? Because it doesn't matter to me. I know who God is. I know who I am in Him. I don't have to have the last word. And I pray for, I pray for their heart because, the, because they don't see it. They don't get the big picture. That's why they're oppressing me. That's why they're ridiculing me. That's why they're seeking to cause suffering in my life. I'll be meek. Finally, how do we live so that the world truly sees Jesus in us? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He took all our sins on, a, on the cross. We know this, right? This is Christianity 101. Jesus took on the sins, took the sins of the world on the cross, on himself. It's the bedrock of our belief, of our faith. And most will say amen to that. Yeah. Jesus took on the, the sins, took on my sins, which means I'm free from the condemnation and the shame and the guilt of those sins. I'm free and made righteous in Christ. And that's awesome. And that is our freedom. But it's not the end. It's not the whole truth. He didn't just take our sins so that we could live how we want. We're also called to live holy so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He didn't just take the punishment for our sins. Our sins were put to death on the cross with him so that we might live for righteousness. No, we won't live perfect lives. We will stumble. We will fall short. We will sin. But to live for righteousness is out of a God-centered life and a pursuit to holy living. We want to seek to live holy. It says, by his wounds you have been healed. I want to address very quickly. Healed of what? What is he talking about? This verse is often quoted in uh, prayers for healing. And I think I, I believe in asking for health and for healing in prayer. And this is actually a quote from Isaiah 53. But ultimately... And ultimately, of course, all who believe will be made perfect and healthy and whole in eternity. But I want to just point out that this is not what Peter is explicitly referring to. He's not referring to physical healing when we very lightly consider the context. He's been talking about dying to sin, living righteously, following Christ in meekness in the midst of suffering. It would be kind of out of place to suddenly just switch to physical healing. And I don't believe that's what he's talking about. So what are we healed of what? What have we been healed of? First of all, it doesn't say that you might be healed. It says you are, you were healed. It's done. What was done? And I believe this becomes more clear when we read the following 
verse, verse 25. So by his wounds you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The point is this, that you were sick, lost, wandering about, and living in sin. But now through Christ on the cross, by his wounds, by his death, you were healed. This is talking about your sin. Your sin died on the cross. Through his wounds, you were healed. You are no longer lost or alone. There is one who is with you, guiding you, a good shepherd, an overseer, always looking out for you, always watching over you, always with you, even in the midst of your pain and your suffering. He intercedes on your behalf, the Bible tells us, that he prays for you. So even though we all maybe sinned this week, maybe today, Some of us more than others. Not pointing any fingers. That's why I'm looking down right now. But we've all sinned. We've all sinned probably this week, most of us. But what I want you to understand is that this is no excuse to keep sinning. So when it comes to meekness, when it comes to, and the ultimate goal that I'm trying to paint here is the bigger picture that Peter is trying to show us is we are foreigners here And when people look at us, we want them to see Christ. We want to follow in his footsteps. We want to live as he lived. And we won't be perfect. We will sin. But my point here is that sometimes I think we fall into this category of, well, you know, it's okay, I'm forgiven. It's okay, I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm free from, from the condemnation of sin. I'm free from the guilt and the shame and the weight of sin because of what Christ did. And that's true. But don't let that be a reason to keep sinning. But that we would remember that we've been healed. That the work of the cross was not only to redeem us from the penalty of those sins, but also to usher us into a place where we can seek to live righteous lives, holy lives, so that the world would truly be perplexed at the way we live. And he's meek in the midst of suffering. He finds joy in the midst of his trials. He doesn't return a harsh word. He doesn't seek revenge. How is that possible? Let us seek to live holy lives that we would truly be viewed differently. You are healed. Your sin died on the cross. So will you now die to the sin that you've been healed from? What we need to do in this, again, is change the way we think. Change the perspective. To be God-centered, to be conscious of God in all these things. In every action we take, every step we move forward. When we fall down, I don't want to say, oh, well, you know, I'm forgiven. Messed up again, oh, well. Probably do it again tomorrow, but... But really seek to say, no, I don't, I, don't need, I don't need to continue in this. I can be free from this because I'm healed by the wounds of Christ. 
I can seek righteousness. I, I'm not going to always meet the goal that I have. I'm not going to be perfect in this life, but I'm going to seek it nonetheless. And I'm going to continue to seek it nonetheless. Not only because I want to be close to Christ, even in the midst of whatever I'm dealing with, but also because I want the world to see him as I see him. As a loving, caring, meek, humble Lord who has status and authority and power as we have status in the Lord. But it isn't something that we wave around, but we go through this life in meekness to counter what the world finds as important. And I believe that if we all see this kind of consciousness, a God-centered consciousness in our lives, this will bring about radical Christianity in our lives, and the world will take notice. I'll invite the band to come back up as we close. I'll pray. Father, we thank you that you not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but you, by the work of your cross, have brought us to a place that we can seek righteousness, that we can seek to live holy, that we can seek to walk in your footsteps so that when those around us in our daily lives look at us, they would see Christ, that they would see you in all that we do, all that we say, how we respond. Father, help us to show you in all that we do, that you may be glorified in and through us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.